morning. We are closing out the book of Malachi this week, and so our text this morning is from chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray together. Father God, it is a joy to gather and worship you this morning. God, to worship in song and fellowship and prayer and proclamation of your word. God, we pray this morning that your spirit would move powerfully in our hearts. God, that your church would grow confident in you as you mold us into the image of your Son for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. So last week I said no one sits right here. And look what happened. I feel very loved. Thank you. Taking notes, names, you know, who's doing it. So uh, great to be here. This is our final week in the book of Malachi, as Brittany just told us, and this sermon is entitled, entitled Genuine Fear. And fear is really part of being human. It's how we were made. God designed us to fear things for our protection. Fear is it's that, that feeling, that voice, that heightened sense of awareness when we're confronted with danger. So when you're home alone and, and someone sketchy knocks on the door, fear is that voice that says, don't answer the door. Or when there's that loud crash or something's falling, loud noise, whatever, it's, it's that heightened heart rate that prepares us to flee if need be. See, fear is a good thing. It's a blessing. God designed us with this built-in safety system called fear. But... Fear, like any of our emotions, can be consuming. And, and for many people, it is immobilizing. Because fear brings about this heightened sense of awareness. It calls all of our attention to the thing that is causing us this fear. Which is exactly what we need when we are in imminent danger. But inside of a society where we're conditioned to fear everything... Fear can so easily rule in our hearts. It can dominate our lives. 
The, the list of things that we fear or that we're told to fear is unending. We fear what people think. We fear terrorist attacks. We fear economic crashes. We fear our children getting hurt. We fear retiring without enough money. We fear relational strife and struggle. We fear so many things. And unchecked, it will consume us. Fear will consume us. And the media and politicians know this. They know the power of fear. So they stir up our fear to control us, to push agendas and to sell products. And the message is, if you just had this or did this or believed this, if you just vote for this politician or support this agenda, then you will be safe and secure and comfortable. Then you will have control over this thing that is causing you fear. Because that's really the root of our fear, right? We fear things that we cannot control. Things outside of our power. And so we jump on the opportunity to regain some level of control over that which causes us fear. But the problem is each time we, we comply, when we run to the store to get plastic and, and duct tape to seal our houses up from the nuclear fallout, right? I know some of you did that. <laughs> Every time we comply, there's a new fear and a new solution that arises. So many people live as slaves in this endless cycle of fear management. But Scripture speaks into this fear-driven way of life. Over 70 times in God's Word, we're told, do not fear. Do not be afraid. This is the message spoken to judges and prophets, to common people and kings. Do not fear. And we're instructed specifically not to fear man or circumstances or things outside of our control. We're told not to be anxious about money or food or possessions. Here's the thing. We know that, right? We know that Scripture says not to fear these things, but we've believed the lie that chasing after the approval of man Chasing after the things of this world can actually bring us security and joy at times. So when our reputation or our standard of living is challenged by people, by, by circumstances, or by disaster, our response is, is fear. Because we fear what we cannot control. We fear what threatens that which we love most. And Scripture doesn't reject this fear response. It doesn't say that fear is bad, but rather it reorients our perspective on where our true fear should reside. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Jesus. Our problem is not that we fear. It's that we often fear the wrong things. We are so focused on the temporal, on the earthly, the day-to-day -day struggles that we miss the eternal reality of our existence before God himself. 
We place so much value on preserving our life, which has an expiration date the moment that we're born. We're so concerned with preserving our comfort and our perceived security that we neglect the fact that every breath we take is a testament to the grace of God. We neglect the eternal truth that apart from Christ, we have no hope at all. That without Christ, the weight of God's righteous judgment is upon us. And while we can get some level of control over some of the fear-inducing things in our life, the one thing we cannot control is the sovereign God over all creation. Scripture tells us time and again not to fear people. Not to fear life circumstances or things going on in the world. It tells us to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And for those of us who don't know Christ as Savior, this is a fear of judgment. It is a fear of God's terrible and righteous wrath. But for those who have trusted in Christ, who have been pronounced righteous by the saving blood of Jesus, there is now no condemnation. The fear of judgment has been swallowed up by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So the fear of God in the life of believers is not a condemning fear. It is a comforting fear. It's a reverent fear that drives us to our knees in humility before the power and the majesty of God. Because while this world presents us with endless dangers and threats that we cannot control, nothing is outside of God's power. Nothing is outside of God's control. And that should bring us tremendous comfort. Proverbs 14, 26 through 27 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And his children have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. In the fear of the Lord, we have strong confidence. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The best picture of this, of the fear of the Lord that I've experienced happened to be while dangling from the side of a mountain happened on numerous occasions many, many years ago. But I've done a lot of climbing in my days, and being attached to the side of a towering mountain is a scary place. I, I don't like heights, and I don't like public speaking, so I torture myself by doing both of those things. But it's this place where you cannot help but realize your insignificance and your weakness in relation to the mountain. And I've been on mountains and I've watched rock slides that are so big that boulders the, sizes, the size of buses are like flowing down the side of the mountain right where I saw people walking the day before. Unimaginable power and danger coming from this mountain. But even still, when you're on a mountain and you see storms brewing on the horizon, the only thing you can think about in that moment is getting as close to the mountain as possible to find a cleft in the rock or, or a cave in the side of the mountain that you can, can take refuge in the protection of the mountain. 
See, the mountain itself is, is an object of both reverent fear and strong confidence. You can't stand in the presence of a great mountain and not be humbled by its magnitude and its power. It evokes a reverent fear. But when you enter the cleft of the rock and draw near to the mountain, you realize that the fullness of its magnitude and power is your refuge. All the fearful, fearful wonder is your security. And the presence of God is like a mountain. We are faced with our own weakness and insignificance in his presence. But the God who spoke creation into existence has proclaimed his unfailing love and mercy to all who trust in him. He has redeemed us through the blood of Christ that we might take refuge in the rock of our salvation. This is our strong confidence. And when we begin to understand the fear of God, when we truly comprehend his power and authority over creation, all other fears become small. All other fears are seen in the light of his eternal power and authority. And in our text today, Malachi speaks of the abundant joy awaiting those who fear the Lord. But before, before that, before we get to the abundant joy, he warns us of the eternal weight of judgment who all, for all who do not take refuge in him, who do not fear his name. To those who do not fear God, who pretend he doesn't exist, who deny his holiness, who suppress the truth, as we read in Romans 1, who think that they can be good enough to earn God's favor, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 says, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's pretty brutal. And the imagery here is far different than what we read earlier in this book. It's far different than the refiner's fire. This is not the fire of refinement. This is a consuming fire, leaving neither root nor branch. This is the answer to the Israelites' question, where is the God of justice? This is God saying justice is coming. Justice will be served. And this entire book is the merciful plea to Israel and to us to be found in him on that day. To be a people of genuine fear and genuine faith so that when the day comes, we will not be consumed. It's a plea to set our hearts on God, on his purposes, on his kingdom, on his glory, to stop wasting our lives amassing a bunch of junk thinking that we can be secure, to stop fearing man and realize that your only refuge from the snares of death in this life is found in the powerful arms of a loving God. Scripture is clear on this. Eternal destruction awaits all men and women who do not fear the Lord, who do not esteem his name. Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness 
shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from stalls. So this is the promise of a faithful and loving God to his people, to his treasured possession. For those who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, in its wings. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to whether or not the Son of Righteousness is a direct reference to Christ because we don't ever see it quoted in the New Testament like we do so many other Old Testament passages. So I can't say with certainty that Malachi was foreshadowing Christ in this verse, but the reality is the entire Old Testament is pointing to Christ. So whether this is a direct reference or not is irrelevant. When Christ returns in glory, righteousness will reign and healing will come. This is a promise. The day is coming when evil will be judged, when darkness will be no more. And those who fear the Lord shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. Doesn't that make you excited? You always want to leap like a calf. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm guessing you're really not cow people, right? You do dogs and cats. We got a few birds and bunnies, and we got a couple horse people. They're like skinny cows that you can ride. Um, I've actually been around a lot of cows in my day, oddly, and the image of a, a calf being released from a stall is this picture of freedom and joy. They're jumping and running around unrestricted and unrestrained. And the promise of this text is that one day our struggle with sin will be over. Sadness will be no more. Weeping and mourning will come to an end. And one day, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4, what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Our triumph over sin and evil at the coming of Christ will be both total and final. There will be no remnant of wickedness, no lingering sinfulness. All evil will be swallowed up in the consuming fire of God's righteous justice. And as we read in verse 3, you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, that's a little brutal, right? Let's be honest, that's, it sounds a little bit morbid. I wouldn't suggest hitting up Facebook with a post about how excited you are to tread down the wicked like ashes under the soles of your feet. That would be weird. Probably unwise. But this is an image of total victory over evil. All the pain, all the, the evil, all the, the fear... The fear of death will be swallowed up in victory. We will be set free once and for all from the bondage of the flesh and the pain of living in this fallen creation. This should cause us to rejoice. Despite the fact that for a little while evil seems to prevail, the wicked prosper and sin just appears to go unchecked at times. God will have the final word. God will act. And when he does, his judgment will be swift. For those 
who fear the Lord and trust in Christ for their righteousness, the day of the Lord will be the fulfillment of everything God has promised in his word. It will be final judgment and infinite glory. And as believers, we are told to long for this day, to hasten the coming of the Lord. Because nothing in this world can compare with the joy of being in Christ's presence for eternity. This is why Christ came. To free us from all the fears and to bring us into his presence. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. It tells us that Jesus took on flesh that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ came to destroy evil, to judge evil, and he came to deliver his people from the bondage of fear and the bondage of fear of death. Let me move in to the final three verses here in the book, Malachi shifts gears to, to two concluding thoughts. He moves from the eternal distinction between those who fear the Lord and those who don't to the practical reality of how this fear plays out in our daily lives. It's Malachi's application, you might say. In light of all that we've read, how then should we live? And the ample answer is, is pretty simple. Uh, be faithful to God and be faithful in your relationships. First he says in verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. So here's the point. Those who fear the Lord will desire to live in obedience to him. That's pretty simple. They will remember God's commands. They will long to walk in his statutes. This is the genuine remembrance that we talked about last week. And the reason he talks about the law here is not because the law was a means to salvation. But the law, as we've discussed, illuminates our need for a savior. As Paul says in Galatians 3, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It was our steward, our tutor, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you were all sons of God through faith. Because of Christ, we are no longer under the law. So the motivation isn't, I obey so that God will love me. That's wrong. It's God has loved me and does love me, therefore I obey. Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it perfectly for us. That we might be righteous through him by faith. So those who fear the Lord are not justified by works of the law, but by faith. And obedience is always the fruit of genuine faith. If we fear God, we will remember his ways. And then 
as we move into verses 5 and 6, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So once again, in this text, Malachi is foretelling the coming of John the Baptist. The evidence of this is found in Luke chapter 1, when the angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's father, and says, You will bear a son by your barren wife, Elizabeth, and his name will be John. And the angel said, He will go before him, go before Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. See, the angel is quoting Malachi here. And what's amazing about these final verses is that after everything God has spoken through the prophet Malachi, all the sins pointed out, all the arrogant questions from the Israelites, all the faithlessness, the parting thought that is left with the people is about fathers' hearts being turned to their children. That when the gospel is on the move in the lives of God's people, the hearts of fathers will be turned towards their children. That's crazy. John the Baptist came preaching repentance, and true repentance will lead to faithfulness in all of our relationships. But there is a significance to the fact that Malachi points to the hearts of fathers in this text. See, we live in a time where men who fear the Lord and embrace their role as the spiritual leader in their homes is rare. It's rare. But things really haven't changed since Adam and Eve, right? You know the story. The whole forbidden fruit debacle is going down, and we read that Adam is standing there, right? He wasn't off in the woods. He was right there, Silent and unengaged. If there was a recliner in the garden, he was probably sitting in it. If there was an Xbox, he was probably playing it. Sports Center, yeah. That's what he was doing. He was there the whole time. And for many men in our society, this pretty much sums up their spiritual leadership. Silent and unengaged. Because our hearts as men have been given to our jobs and our hobbies and our bank accounts and our televisions at the expense of our children's hearts, at the expense of our marriages. We, we expect our wives and the church to take care of all of that stuff because we're men, right? Don't say right. Don't agree with me. We don't do kid stuff. We don't talk about Jesus. We're so manly that we feel justified in engaging our jobs and our hobbies and our couches rather than engaging the hearts of our children. See, my prayer for Christ Church has always been that we would be a church full of godly men. Not because men are somehow more important than women but because the hearts of men in our society have been captivated by so many other things for so long. And I, I thank God for the fact that, that we do have so many strong, godly men in this church. 
God has been answering that prayer for years by both bringing and raising up godly men. But for some of you, maybe many of you, you need to thank your wives for remaining faithful when you were not. And all of us need to thank the faithful women we know who have carried the spiritual load in the church and in our homes for generations while men have been too busy and too prideful to humble themselves before God. Now, I know that some of you are reading the text here and you're like, wait a minute. I read ahead and it says the hearts of children are going to be turned to their fathers. Right? You want to get on the kids. It's true, kids. Listen up. You're here. I know you. We got teens now and it's pretty hard, to be honest. They came out of nowhere. So this is for you, teens. Some of you are just disrespectful to your parents, right? Honestly, all of you probably are at times. Some of you are like the vocal outward words of disrespect, but others of you are the obedient face, disrespectful heart. It's no different. I know this because I haven't always been 43. Really, I'm not going to be for much longer. But if you're younger than me, it means I've been as old as you are now at some point. That's how math works. And so I know that sometimes there's a little poopy attitude that lives inside of you that you feed and you water and you care for. It's called your sinful flesh, and it's ugly. But what I hope you hear this morning is that God wants more for you. There is a great joy available for you when you stop fearing what your friends think, trying to be cool, trying to get the whole universe to revolve around you, to revolve around what you are quite sure is best for you. See, God is saying, I have created you for more, more joy, more life, more satisfaction, and it's found when you fear the Lord. It's found when you look to him. And the result will be that you will see that God gave you these imperfect, sometimes annoying parents as a blessing. They are for your good. And as your heart grows closer to God, it will also grow closer to your parents. So kids, you have a part to play in this. You have a part to play in the health of your home. You can make it ugly, or you can make it healthy. But another way that kids' hearts are turned to their fathers is when fathers step up and lead, right? It's on us. It's a product of us as fathers engaging the hearts of our kids. It's playing games and telling stories. It's reading the Bible and praying with them, talking about God with them. It's letting them know that spending time with them is not a burden but a joy. It's looking at Christ's life poured out for yours and seeing him as the ultimate example of godly manhood. And if you think you're off the hook because you don't have any kids or your kids are all grown up, you're wrong. Sorry. When you covenanted with this church, you adopted a lot of kids. Fine print, you may have missed it. Right? Paul didn't have biological children, but he had a lot of spiritual children. And he loved them, and he discipled them, and sometimes he disciplined them as if they were his own. So if you're not comfortable with kids, get comfortable. If you fear kids, fear God more. 
And if you're just lazy and selfish, then repent. That's why Jesus came. Lay down your life for these children rather than your pride or yourself or your fear or whatever it is. I could go on, obviously, for a long time on this topic, but maybe we will in the future. We're almost out of time. So I will wrap up with this. In the fear of the Lord, we have strong confidence. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And when we trust in Christ for our salvation, our hope is in the future joy that has been promised to all who fear the Lord. Our future is secure in him. But while we are still on this earth, let us be a people who live lives of faithfulness, knowing that our God is a rock, that he is our refuge and strong confidence, that he is a fountain of life and our safety from the snare of death. And so what better way to enter into Advent into this season of waiting and longing than these final words from the book of Malachi. The last words before 400 years of silence and waiting upon the coming of the Messiah. Behold, I'm about to send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So these last words before 400 years of silence. Before we open up the gospel And we see this exact thing happening. John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord who came to turn men's hearts to God, to turn them back to their children, to offer salvation and life to all who would trust in him. Where we once feared man, feared danger, feared death, we have now been set free to have genuine, reverent fear for the one true God who upholds all of life in the palm of his hand. And he is a faithful God. He will bring his plan of redemption to completion. Let's pray together. Father God, make us a people who long for the return of our Savior. When sin and death and sadness will be no more and all things will be made new. God, as we wait for this day, make us a people who hasten the return of Christ. Make us a people who proclaim your glory and love to the ends of the earth as we live lives set free from the fear of man free from the fear of death because we know who our God is, the creator, the sustainer, and redeemer of life. Amen.